the best podcast in baseball is brought to you by Clauses by Design. Update your closet, garage, office, pantry, and more. Imagine your home totally organized with Closets by Design. Call 1-800-BY-DESIGN. That's 1-800-BY-DESIGN. The, the perception of the Cardinals locally is that they will stop short of making that final step from contender to favorite. Yes, totally agree. Totally agree. It's so frustrating to me as somebody who's not a Cardinals fan, but who watches it and sees like, hey, we've got this pretty good collection of talent. Like, I just want them to make that one more move to push them forward, right? Like, they they just always feel like they're one short in one spot. And I want them to make that move really badly. They should be the behemoth in that division right now. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the best podcast in baseball, brought to you by Closet by Design in St. Louis. I'm St. Louis Post-Dispatch baseball writer Derek Gould. Joined this week, thrilled to have him. He's freshly back tanned. Should I say tanned? Are you tanned? Well, I mean, I'm always a little bit tanned because I live in Arizona, so like, oh, I fair get point. out in the sun even in the winter. So, yeah, I've always got a little bronze to me. All right, well, there you Okay, so that probably gives away this here. It's, it's MLB Network Radio host extraordinaire. I told you I was going to say that. Uh. Mike Farron. No, I don't. I think extraordinaire is selling it a little bit uh, too hard. I would say it's just like all the people on the channel. I'm one of them. I think I think you're underselling yourself. (laughs) I I have a great time when I'm a guest on your show. So I think you're extraordinary. I have a great time listening to your show. So I'm going with extraordinaire. Well, you also you also host a college baseball program on ESPNU radio, which uh, which unfortunately will give you plenty of baseball to talk about at that level not so much at the major league level um which leads me to my first question that i want to i i'm i've prepped this for you mike i'm very excited to ask you about it um because people ask me it all the time and that's you know they ask what do i do in the winter when there's no baseball i want you to tell us what you do what what do you do when all winter when there's no baseball what's the old line from the raja i sit out the window and Wait for spring? No, I I mean, this has actually been challenging um, with no transactions during the winter, because normally that's a good chunk of what we're doing. But um, in a weird way, when the world shut down in March of 2020, it kind of prepared us for this. So at least on our show, we've spent a good chunk of time, about an hour uh, a day when Jim Duquette, who's who's my regular co-host, and I have been together. auditing organizations, basically going from Mm. top to bottom. So we would spend a half hour going through the pitchers and position players, and then we break down one player in particular and then kind of put them together in the rankings. And it's all, you know, just like any, like if you're looking at prospect lists or anything, it's a snapshot in time, right? So the good news for us is that that this snapshot has been frozen for a long period. Uh, Now, the bad news is that we're starting to run out of teams. So I don't know what's going (laughs) to happen after that i think we have three left so or four left so um so yeah so we're getting close to the end of that but we also have been doing stuff on the channel obviously the hall of fame took a a good chunk of time and we're kind of going back through we're doing um you know this week we're doing a we love the 90s week where we're talking about you know games and players and stars of the 90s and i guess next week will be the 2000s and so there are things we're doing to try and stay engaged and really i think you know college baseball Listen, I'm a big college baseball fan anyway. Mm -hmm. I haven't been able to host this show in six years. 
And I'm really excited to be back doing it. Um, I'm working with Mike Rooney, who is, um, I, I like to call him the secondary face of college baseball behind, behind Kyle <laughs> Peterson for ESPN. Um, yeah, yeah. And Runes is one of my really, really good friends. And um, he's just a college baseball junkie. And, you know, games count starting February 18th for that. So, yeah. I mean, we're getting close to opening day for college baseball. College softball actually opens this weekend, which is the big TV sport between the two. Um, and so, like, yeah, there's stick and ball sports that are going to get going here, and I'm excited to talk about games that matter, and I will, because I think more than anything, we're baseball fans, and I actually kind of look at this as a great opportunity for college baseball to get a little bit of exposure while um, the lockout continues. Before diving into the lockout conversation, I do want to ask you one college baseball question, mm-hmm. if that's all right. Yeah. What? Where's the level of talent and competitive, I guess, sharpness in college baseball now a full year removed from the pandemic and what that did as far as a cascade of talent that remained in college because it was a shortened draft? It's pretty good. Um, I would say, so this year at the college level, the big thing is it is loaded with bats. That wasn't the case last Mm. year. Last year was more college arms. Uh, This college class is loaded with bats. There are a lot of really, really good ones and guys that are going to go at the top of the board. And I think when you start to look at the teams that are picking at the top of the draft, as much as people are excited about the, this trio of um, you know high school bats that are there in uh, Drew yeah. Jones, who's Andrew Jones' uh, son, and um, the, the um, gosh, I'm blanking on his name, uh, Tremel Johnson, the left-handed hitter, who's like if you watch video of him, it's pretty cool. Like he's really good, and Elijah Green, who's you know the son of a former NFL. Uh, lineman and um, a really talented player like the, the, those teams are going to take the guys that have proven college track records. And so there's a ton of that. That said, the pitching is down a little bit, at least in terms of um, draft eligible players. Um, and when you've got a couple of guys who are towards the top of that list or towards the top of those ra- rankings, like Peyton Paulette would have been at, at Arkansas or kind of prelip at Alabama, you know, those guys had had surgery that's going to cost them the year. And, and even guys like Blade Tidwell at Tennessee is going to be slow dope in the year. So it's a lot thinner on that side. But there are a ton of young guys that are coming through because I think the other part of, um, you know, what happened was so like for those who don't follow college baseball, basically anybody who played, who had their season canceled, what, 12 games in, in 2020 was able to keep their eligibility. Normally there's a 35 scholar, well, there's 11.7 scholarships in college baseball, but there's a 35 player roster limit. The NCAA gave relief to these teams to be able to allow them basically to keep everybody on scholarship and the way the transfer portal now works, guys have moved around quite a bit. But the five-round draft in 2020 probably helped the college talent more than anything for 2021 and for 2022 because in addition to having guys go back to school that normally would have been, you know, picked in that, you know, six to 40 range in a regular draft year, you also saw a lot of more prep guys that would have gone that were in that kind of, usually I would say that 11 to 15 round where, you know, you might be able to save a little in the first part to overpay a guy towards that, that middle part of the draft. And so there's still a ton of talent that's at the college ranks. And I am really fired up for this season because of that's, I I'm, I'm excited to see what that has done for some teams that, aren't always powerhouses, right? Like, but if they Mm -hmm. had the right group, the right group of pitchers, 
or, you know, even just like the difference of having a Saturday pitcher stick around or a Sunday pitcher stick around, what that could do for some programs that maybe aren't able to contend year after year after year. So I, I just always wondered about that, like what it did for the competitive balance of the game. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, I think I think college baseball is a little bit different than some of the other majors. Certainly it's different than football in that sure. the the mid-majors or the small schools you know, have a better chance. I mean, in 2016, Coastal Carolina won the national championship, right? right. Like you look at teams that are ranked in the top, you know, 25 right now and it's places like east carolina and uh you know dallas baptist which is the pride of the valley i mean they're they're really the best most consistent program in the missouri valley conference and um you know there's always a a ton of big west teams but but irvine and and long beach in particular are are really strong and i think in a lot of respects as much as the big 10 is part of the power five and they have improved significantly in baseball the over the last you know 10 years in particular the the fifth best conference most years i would say is either the american or or it's the big west and so those aren't necessarily the biggest schools and so yeah um so like that's a fun part of it too is that there's a lot of different ways to get there and big west baseball is like it's very much a throwback, you know, it's a lot of, you know, it, it's, you're practicing bunt defenses and, um, <laughs> you know, there's a lot of, of stolen bases and there's, you know, a lot of off-speed pitching, a lot of pitching backwards. And, um, you know, maybe you've got one guy that's a bopper in, in the lineup, but it's a really fun brand and they tend to pick up the ball too. And I, so I'm a big fan of the big West just in general. We are having this conversation. I warned you with the Tottenham game on the background and it's tied now just so oh, okay. and in case well, you're prepared. Yeah. Yeah. You'll be prepared. It's tied now. So I warned you about that, that that would be on in the background, but also that gives us kind of a, a, a time fix to give everybody because we're on the eve of likely the formal announcement that spring training is going to be delayed. It's inevitable. We probably felt that way all along. Um, I would say that coming out of the world series, we all felt that it was unlikely for spring training to open as scheduled around Valentine's day with pitchers and catchers. Um, that said, how pessimistic to load the question here, how pessimistic are you that the regular season will start on time at this point? Um, I, I don't know. I, I just, has it changed? Has your yeah, feeling changed? I was, you know, I'm a, I'm an eternal optimist. So I was hopeful that once things got down to brass tacks that we'd be moving, more quickly through this, but that clearly hasn't been the case. So, yeah. Um, you know, I think anytime revenues start getting put into jeopardy revenues or, or paychecks that it tends to create a deadline. Right. So, yeah. Um, I, am I more pessimistic than I was? Yeah, definitely. I think it's, you know, you're starting to get to the point where you, you worry a little bit about it because, the team, the two sides just haven't spent that much time at the bargaining table. You know, the owners, um, the commissioner said that that he locked the that they locked the players out to speed up the bargaining process. And if that's the case, imagine how much slower it would have been going if this is actually right. what past is supposed to be. Um, but it just doesn't seem like there's any sense of urgency, and it it just kind of sucks. So, and 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 I should clarify that it it really doesn't seem like the sense of urgency is there on ownership's part. You know, I mean that's that's where things kind of lie. And I get it from their standpoint; they don't want to give up too much. They've won the last two negotiations pretty handily, and you know, if you were in the same position, you might be going, "Well, why do I have to give anything back? It's been working pretty good for me." But that's why we have. 
contracts that expire and that's where we get, you know, that's where leverage comes into play. And so, you know, all of those things are still, you know, part of the discussion. I, I'm still hopeful that that we'll get something done um, that won't jeopardize opening day and that will get us, you know, the bulk of spring training games. But it's hard to be to think that my glass is half full at this point. It's interesting that you bring that up. And I don't think we can talk about it enough that they said the lockout was to spur negotiations or and it's a it's a good way to frame it because it wasn't the lockout can't possibly have meant to spur action on the field because otherwise they wouldn't have had a lockout. They dropped the lockout. Everybody goes to spring training next week, likely under the same CBA rules that expired. But then the players have the leverage because they could strike or not show up or anything like that. They imposed the lockout to limit the players leverage. Right. And take the strike off the table. Um, if they wanted movement, if they wanted baseball activity, they could drop the lockout and everybody would go to spring training next week. It's just not going to happen. So the the positioning at the time saying that the lockout was to spur negotiations and then to wait 40 plus days before they began, um, you know, that 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 was a very odd optic. And it does set the stage that the owners are willing to wait. And I don't know if. You know, for, for a lot of us, and t- tell me if you agree with this, for a lot of us, we kind of saw the 2020 as galvanizing for the union. And in talking with players, they kind of described the same thing, that like they really felt like they came together as a group, as they as they fought f- for what they wanted in that shortened season, as they really tried to prioritize some of the health and safety protocols, that they felt that really brought them together as a group and maybe, st- st- well, not maybe, definitely steeled them for what was ahead. I wonder if maybe it also showed the owners that they can survive if they wait a little bit. Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I I think even that galvanizing force happened a little bit before the 2020 lockout. I think it was the reaction to the, to the, um, if you're looking for like one, one kind of tipping point, it was the reaction to the Astro scandal that I think really. Oh, interesting. Unification from the players and at least publicly in what they were saying. But I agree. Can you elaborate on that? Why, why, why do you, I mean, because that did in some ways pit 29 rosters against one. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, why was that galvanized? I think it was more that more like, um, you know, everybody against a handful of players, right? Like it wasn't even one whole roster. I'd say it was probably 12 guys. You know what I mean? Um, I think it's, I think just the fact that they found their voice, right? So Hmm. they were so, so strident about, um, the the reactions to the punishment and to what happened and how it played out. Um, and then everything that happened in the aftermath, you know, the, the commissioner um, made a major public relations misstep in referring to the world series uh, trophy as the, a piece of metal. Right. And so all of a sudden that makes it seem like, well, he's disrespecting us and here's another way to do it. And so, um, you know, you get a lot of alpha males that get bowed up as a result of that. And so um, I think that that was probably part of it. I mean, some of this had been bubbling under for a, a number of years because of, of you know, basically from the moment the last CBA was, um, <laughs> arrived where the only thing that really changed for the players was they got like extra seats on the bus and didn't have to tip the clubbies like, like or didn't right. have money to tip the clubbies right like or walking around cash like th- those kind of things i think you know probably started this a little bit just in there like wait a second we should probably pay closer to t- attention to what's going on but i think that's kind of what started it and then you have the the restart issues going into 2020 as well um that 
that really helped to to drive them even closer together. So I think all of those things are factors in it. I mean, you're right in the sense that like the lockout doesn't need to exist. The way my understanding of collective bargaining, which again is is limited as a radio talk show host, but um, <laughs> I feel like I can I can speak on this in the expertise, is that that if once a CBA expires, you basically work under the the same rules of the CBA. Okay. Yep. Um until you reach a new agreement. Now, it does right. put you at risk for a strike. The one thing I would add that's a little bit different is that that there's a specific sunset date in the CBA, at least that's my understanding, um, for what the competitive balance tax is. So Correct. I think, yep. and maybe this, is, maybe this is a little bit <clears throat> cynical, but I, I would think that the legal reasons why they felt the need to impose a lockout immediately had as much to do with not having an uncapped year. You know what I mean? Like that's kind of like okay, we're going to try and protect ourselves some, and I'm sure that even if that that's not the main reason, that had to fa- factor into the calculus for it. So absolutely, you know, all you of those things up. I yeah. think are 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 part of what we are, and we do have the, like there is precedence for a commissioner ending a lockout. I think it was '74. Mm-hmm. There was a lockout, and Bowie Kuhn ended and sent everybody to spring training, which really ticked off all the owners. I don't see Rob Manfred doing the same thing, but there are histories of lockouts being ended by the commissioner before there is an agreement that's reached. You're right. Yeah. I mean, to give kind of historical perspective on it, the, you know, the 94 95 players strike, the 94 season started with the previous CBA being. Mm-hmm applied so that's why it became a strike just to kind of give fans an example well, and the 95 season when it started was under those same rules remember because right what what had happened in those 200 some odd days from the time that the players struck the the owners tried to implement basically a new agreement and a new set of rules and mm-hmm. the players association took it to the national labor relations board which said that that they had not uh, bargained in good faith okay, and so correct. they overturned it and basically forced them to take players back this was part of when they had replacement players and all of this and of course the, the it's fairly famous that the the head of the or the the um arbiter in that is now on the supreme court it's a just right the judge who so, went yeah. yeah who they took it in front of in new york yeah so that and, and it's an important point for people to understand too is an um the owners declared an impasse and it's one right. of those words that I'm sure, like you, uh, you know, I'm very careful to never use right. in the coverage because it has such a legally charged definition. If if an, if ownership declares an impasse, they are saying that they cannot arrive at a deal, and that gives them the power to unilaterally implement, which is what you just described, their their mm-hmm. their own agreement um, and kind of compel it upon the sport. Um, that's their legal right. Now, what led to it is the union said, whoa, whoa, whoa. How could you declare an impasse when we're still talking? Um, this went through the mediator. This has it, this ha- this does have ripple effects even today where some of their reluctance or all of their reluctance to go in front of the mediator that was offered by the owners relates back to this because they did go to an, a mediator. They did agree to do that. And it it's what led to the cancellation of the World Series. It did not help things. And then that brought about the impasse. Then that brought about the court case. Then that brought about, you know, players breaking the the, the line to go to spring training, a few players. Um, all those things are in play here. But that's why, like, when you'll see, like, a headline that says union and owners at an impasse, it's like, well, no, they're no. not. When you see that word, that means trouble. And that was a huge bat signal for trouble um, back in 94, 95. 
Yeah, I, I think impasse and quarter poll are the two terms that get thrown around willy-nilly yeah. that don't mean what they do. A quarter of the way into the season is not the quarter poll. The quarter poll is the last quarter mile of a horse race. Not that the last I would quarter put of a, a couple of, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I would not put money on a horse race, of course. What's the vibe that you get from fans you hear from, from listeners to your radio show? Um, it's, you know, are, are they pro owner, pro player? Are they pro nothing? Are they frustrated? Do you think that even if baseball is back, say within a month, there's going to be a lingering bruise here? Um, do, do you sense, um, some seething frustration here or, or worse, do you sense apathy that baseball won't come back from? Um, because at least think- frustration, they care. Yeah. I mean, I think frustration is the right. I mean, I'm frustrated, aren't you? I mean, like this is like what we do for a living. Right. And, you know, I spent six years working for a team too, and watching what happened in 2020 with, uh, you know, across the sport with people being furloughed and terminated, you know, during, during the height of the COVID pandemic was in seeing salaries cut, you know, kind of across the board. And for some teams, you know, cut for the first part, at least the first part of 2021, um, you know, that, that really sucked. Like that, that was no fun to watch happen. And the last thing I want to do is see that happen again. And I'm not talking about for, you know, like the, the executives, the high end executives, your general managers, team presidents, all that, they're going to survive. They're going to be just fine. But like when you're talking about, you know, people who are, are seasonal workers, you know, like who are the, the, the fine people that take the tickets in the, the seats at, at Bush stadium. Like th- mm-hmm. those are the people that, you know, I worry about, or those kids that are recently out of school who are the easy ones who, to, um, you know, to, to cast aside in some sort of furlough where they don't get paid for a, a couple of months, potentially. I mean, those are, those are people that I really worry about in this, because we've just witnessed it happening two years ago. So um, it's it's a little bit frustrating from that standpoint, at least for me. From the fan standpoint, I think they're frustrated because they see um, – they have not seen much in terms of conversation or negotiation, you know, and I think that's the part that's frustrating. I think that there is a little bit – and this is may generalize too much, but I do think that there is a little bit of a generational divide on what – um, sides people tend to come down huh. on, you know, if yeah. you have to see sides, I think fans that are probably like, we're probably right at that cutoff, right. In the, the 45 to 50 range of uh, the, those who are a little bit older than us, I think tend to still side more with ownership while those beneath us in age tend to side more with the players. And I think, you know, some of that is born of, of when your fandom came about, right? Like there's so many, like, I mean, it's, you're what, two years, three years older than I am. So like, are you 48? Is that right? No, no, but, but thanks. Well, 49. So you're just a couple years older than I am. (laughs) We're we're about the same. I'm 45. So I'm 46. Oh, I thought you were older than me. She's just so much wiser. No, I I get that a lot. In fact, you know what? Like very few, just, this is way, but like, Trent, our friends, our yeah. friend, C. Trent Rosecan. Like, who's the same age as us. Who's the same age as us, likes to bring out how much older I am than him. It's a few months. So <laughs> we're on MLB now talking about the Hall of Fame ballot. And he brings up the fact that, like, he goes, well, someone much older and wiser than me, Derek, said. And I'm like, on live television. I'm like, wow, man, how do I come back from that? And... <laughs> <laughs> but it, it, but it, it, it's. I asked. A, I asked an, another writer. 
one point in time here recently. I said, how did I go from being one of the youngest guys around to one of the oldest guys around in 15 minutes? Like I never got to be the middle-aged writer. I just went from like being, hey, it's young guy. Man, wow, you know, you don't know anything. You're too young to be, wow, you're young on a major league beat. How'd you get here so fast? To all of a sudden, man, you've been around forever. Man, you must be really old. It's fascinating what's happened. You know, well, I don't. It's because all the, the old the guys are tired. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> There's a lot, mean, of, a lot, a lot of young writers now on the yeah. beat. Where it's a lot different than our generation, where it was a destination beat. Um, you know, and you worked your career toward it, as opposed to you know now rope it into your career as you move on to, you know, as far from my perspective, you move on to TV or you move on to a national writer right. or you move on to a different kind of takeout kind of role where, whereas when I was coming out of college, you know, it was a destination beat, you know, right. you mentioned the Supreme court thing. I mean, that's, I looked around when I was in college and I was like, I'll never be a baseball writer because these, you know, the baseball writers are like Supreme court justices. Right. <laughs> and then my timing is just off. What am I going to do? Am I going to go to Denver? Nope. Jack, you know, Jack Atkin and Tracy Ringlesby are there. Am I going to go to St. Louis? Nope. Rick Hummel's there. Am I going right. to go to Kansas city? Nope. Bob Dutton and Dick Cagle are there. Where am I going to go to cover baseball? I just assumed I wouldn't. So it's very funny that warp speed that now I'm older and very few people can like peg my age. I think that's because I look 70. I have the hairline. <laughs> also 30. 80. But you but also, also look 30. Like you look right, very but I young also too. Look, but, but I wear young, young glasses. And so people go, well, someone with Harry Potter glasses can't be that old. <laughs> Well, you're more so we're we're in the same era more than anything. We are, and I think, we are. That's I think, a long way of saying that we collected the same baseball cards. So Correct. we, we, yeah, we. So like, 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 I've got the '84 tops like sheet on my wall. So like, we're mm. we're we're of that age when free agency was just kind of coming into its own. And like, I have the '84 baseball preview from the National Lampoon on my wall. Oh, nice! I love mm-hmm. that. That's I'm great. Pretty proud of that. That's yeah. really cool. Um, I but, also but, have a standing. I have one of those old marker, or I'm sorry, magnet boards, right? That had, mm-hmm. kept the standings on. Oh yeah, okay. yeah. I, I have one of those, and it has the old logos. So it's from, it's from the '94 season. And wow. so, can you guess where it's frozen in time? It's oh, it's on my wall right now. It is a a frozen a in time. The Cardinals I, I, were 53 and 61. The Expos were 74 and 40. Does that close the gap for you? Yeah, it does. It was uh, uh, the day of the strike, 1994, frozen in time. I'm sorry. Yeah. And then I have the updated magnets for the Devil Rays and Diamondbacks that I got later. (laughs) 1998. Yeah. So, but... but I think all of this has to do with, I mean, it's, it's like when free agency came about, right? right so like right. we, when we, when we were growing up, when free agency was track, still the, just trying to get us on it because I don't have as much cool stuff in my office. I've got a, a, <laughs> paint, a digital painting of Dick Allen smoking a cigarette and, and juggling, which I really That's love. That's amazing. But. Is that an NFT? No, it's not. It's actual, uh, it's an actual, um, uh, 
print that a, a friend wow. of mine did. She has uh, put together. Oh, you may remember. You remember Carly Todd, who used to work with the uh-huh. Rays? Yeah. So she she now is the director of baseball operations for the University of Texas. And she has done a whole thing of, of digital prints of um, baseball players smoking. So like she's got all these kind of like famous photos of like Jim Leland and uh, Keith Hernandez and like all these guys are, like, just having a rip, right? And she's turned them into these di- this digital art. And so I have that very famous SI cover of, you know, Dick Allen wearing his white socks, yeah. red pinstripes and juggling and like the aviator specs and like the cigarette dangling out of his mouth. I mean, Dick Allen was the coolest anyway. So like, and he predates us really like, in a, I mean, his career, you know, mm-hmm. ended right, right when we were bored, but he just like, to me, he personifies cool. So I have that one up, but yeah, he also yeah. was like, he didn't really get to achieve free agency, true free agency, right. you know? So it's not that far detached from when we started covering the game. And so our parents and and people we were around as we were breaking into the business viewed free agency, I think, a lot differently than younger fans do now, whereas it's been part of the game. It's helped to build competitiveness in different spots. And and it also has, you know, allowed people to be fans of players. That and the 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 access nationally to more games, more highlights, more mm-hmm. conversation has allowed people to follow players like they would internationally in football in a manner that they didn't maybe in the generations before. And so I think that that's where some of the, it's not a clean division for sure, but I think that's, that's part of point. the dividing line is that, you know, in, in I'm sure that there are a lot of cardinal. I mean, I know there's the, the 90% of the or 95% of the people that are listening would call themselves Cardinals fans on this podcast. But I think I would think the younger ones are probably like, yeah, but I still you know, paid a little bit of attention to the angels with pools there. Now, not everyone, certainly. And I'm sure I'll hear from one who was like, I didn't care once he left, he did it's dirty, but that's fine. But like, there's a, I think a better understanding of where it comes uh, of what what's happening with, you know, free agency. And I think there's this, this little bit of a divide in the, the, you know, that the tired, argument of billionaires versus millionaires and i know you were talking about that in your chat this week and it's just not you know like even if you were to take away the dollar figures from it like most of us work for somebody else and so we understand how hard it is to get a raise or to negotiate a new salary or whatnot and that's in a lot of respects what the players are doing and so maybe there's a little bit more public empathy for it than there was certainly 25 years ago when almost all of the coverage and reaction was based around, well, these players are greedy. They're the ones who went out on strike. They should be mm. glad. They should be fortunate to play the game. It does feel like it has swung a little bit in the balance um, from where it was in 94, 95. I, I like that point a lot. I, I, I've i talked to folks about how owners kind of give off an air of permanence, you know, like uh-huh. they're here committed to the team the way the fans are. Um, you know, or or a way is siding with the owner, is siding with the laundry, because that player may be here today and gone tomorrow. And how could they? And they just don't share that same passion as a as a fan does, a commitment to the team. And I don't think that's fair, but I understand where that's coming from. Where you see the owner, it's part of why people go, why won't the owner do more to try to win a World Series? Why doesn't he want to win a World Series as, or you know as much as I do? Um, it, I think that same kind of question come or comes from the same area of where they're like, well, you know, the owners are going to stay. Right. Right. And like, listen, I think, I do think that one of the things that, um, 
that Bud Selig did that was largely successful was trying to push for local ownership as much as possible, you know, like, um, you know, and, and I think that's, that's one of the things that helps to tie them to tie owners to their, their, um, their owners or to tie the fans to their owners and their teams is that that helps and that you get the feeling that, you know, like Bill DeWitt was born in St. Louis and I knew he bounced around a lot, but um, I think that that's, you know, I think there's probably a better connection there if you were going to take over from the Bush family um, right. in ownership than, than it would have been if you'd brought in, you know, and, and you know, Frank McCourt, which obviously didn't work as well in Los Angeles. So, so like wherever you can to be able to have that ownership d- does add to that feeling that the owners are in it for, the long haul, but, but they're also very insulated and not everyone is quite as, at least in my perception is quite as available as like, say the DeWitts are who you know, build a wit, you know, a few times a year, we'll stop to talk. Right. And, and that's not the case with every owner now compared to maybe where it was 30 or 40 years ago, where uh, they couldn't wait to tell you what they think. And that's, I think that's part yeah. of the things that's been kind of crazy about this owner's meetings as I was waiting. I was like, okay, who's going to be the one that breaks ranks? Who's going to say something cool that we can talk about on the radio and nobody's done it yet. Right. Right. Where, so where do you, so as to not get bogged down in CBA talks and how, I'll ask this and then I want to move on from it is where would you like to see the sizable advancement? Like to me, the discussions kind of break along three different areas and I've tried to maybe oversimplify, but simplify it down to like, look, the the players want to get higher salaries earlier in their careers. They want to create, they want to disincentivize tanking by somewhat pulling the plug on the value of draft picks in hopes that that also helps to restore the middle class of free agents that has been squeezed out because players can be put into those roles or four players at the minimum can be put into the role once manned for by one guy for $3 million and owners can save money. So they want to try to find ways to restore that middle class. And then third, the owners want to increase or find new streams of revenue either through advertising on jerseys, advertising on helmets, whatever they're going to get from the growth of you know, sports books and gambling in states as that starts to spread, and then expanded playoffs. Those are kind of the three elements, right? Right. And it's like both sides want to win. They both want to go two for three, and it's not possible. What, what If I'm right on that, or, or take a fourth that I didn't mention, where would you see the most significant stride could be for the game to, from a fan perspective, improve the game. Um, well, I'll add a fourth to it, and that's the competitive balance tax, and it, and at the very least, the penalties with that are associated with where the level is now. The level hasn't. I was including that in the, the draft area, okay. but yeah, okay, yeah, I think so. I mean, like, I do think that some of those things are are to pull a baseball term, eyewash. Um, I don't think that <laughs> adjusting the draft is going to to end tanking because I don't think we've seen the draft structures in other sports end that. I mean, we just saw a coach, a former coach in the NFL is suing uh, the league. And part of, you know, Brian Flores argument is that the owner of the dolphins offered him a hundred thousand dollars per extra loss to try and get the number one overall pick. Right. And so, so like there's, there's, I'm not sure how much of that actually ends up moving the needle towards that. Yeah. 
I think from a fairness standpoint, because teams value those zero to three players more, those players that have not reached arbitration yet, I think mm-hmm. to me that's the that's the place where the biggest gain should be made. Because if if they're going to count on those players, then they should be paid more commiserate with yes. what they're what they're valued at. I also think that there is a chance, although I'm a little bit skeptical from the union's line of thinking on this, that if there's a choice between play, paying a young player, you know, let's say 750,000 is the minimum versus 570 now that that it would that that extra $180,000 might make somebody look twice at a middle class free agent, right? Who does the same thing? I don't actually think that's going to end up having an impact, but I do kind of I hear what their argument is, but to me that's the number one thing. But from a fan enjoyment standpoint, I mean that that to me is just fair, right? Like that's fair. Mm-hmm. From a fan enjoyment standpoint, none of the things that we're talking about impact the fans enjoyment of the game. As far as I'm concerned, I don't think any of really? it does. I don't think I don't think the competitive balance tax has done really anything to prevent to to draw up the bottom teams to be no. more competitive. I mean, I think revenue sharing has probably you know ha, has w- the idea of it was you're going to spend it on your major league roster, and I think that there are a few teams who are repeat offenders in terms mm-hmm. of taking that money and either pocketing it for profit or spreading it out in other areas. And that, that to me would be a bigger issue to address. Like if you really wanted to address competitive balance, it would be not necessarily reducing the revenue sharing, but ensuring that it went to the major league roster. Like that to me is something that would be, um, uh, I think a reasonable thing to ask for and for the league to try and work on, even though you might get pushed back in, you know, say some spot in Western Pennsylvania, you know? So like, <laughs> I, I don't think, well, I mean, and I only bring them up because don't, they don't, constantly are at loggerheads with the union over that. I mean, that is an excellent pun because isn't that oh, where you. the Yingling? Yeah, no. yeah, where the, yeah. And there's some notable rivers that come together there. Yeah. There's a, a ballpark them, right? that deserves a better team. Yeah, but I mean yeah. that's not to say that necessarily. Doesn't it money smell like ketchup? <laughs> are we talking about the same place? Uh, yes, I think we are. You can get okay. fries on your sandwich there. Um, oh the, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a great place. The the um, despite we're having the, pierogies for dinner, so it's perfect. <laughs> despite that, I mean that doesn't necessarily guarantee that a team is going to be successful that they spend more right. money, but it does give you more margin for error. You know, like we, we were just auditing the A's and like, you know, the A's are a team that's probably, that seems to be in a perpetual state of a cycle of, you know, win for a couple of years and then have to trade away all its players. And as much as that extra money going towards payroll would help to retain some of those stars in the years where they were really good, having a little bit extra money would help to provide them some depth to be able to, to you know withstand injuries or mm-hmm. go deeper in the postseason you know i think those are some of the things that that would come about with that so those are kind of the th- that would be something for the fans but i think you know everything that we're talking about has n- has very little to do with what's going on between the white lines and i thought tyler kepner in the times the other day had a really good take on that part of it in that you know listen like all of these things that we're talking about in this are purely financially motivated from either very rich people wanting to keep their money or workers wanting to get paid what they feel they deserve which is something that should translate across every industry but it doesn't do anything to improve the way the game is played on the field. And I think he's right. And I think if that's a completely separate argument, I understand why ownership has taken it off the table in this, because they don't want to have to horse trade that for something else where the union might be Uh resistant to it. 
But I do think that that is a much more important conversation whenever we get this settled and we get towards baseball 2023. Will you permit me in this time when we're still waiting for a counter proposal for, for a counter argument though? Because sure. I do think one element that we're, we talk about might subtly change the quality of play on the field. And that is that zero to three area, just as you described. If we, and, and let me try to make this coherent, okay? So if we assign a value to war, right? And which we have, wins above replacement. We can talk about like, how, this is how much that's worth to a team. And we know that teams try to get better bang for their buck for wins above replacement. They don't want to pay, they would rather pay a million for a two war player than four million for a three war player, right? Kind of. I think it's more that they would rather pay um, four guys the league minimum to try and replace right. two wins so of production to. than exactly. play than pay six or seven million dollars for. Well, really, it's on the free agent market. I know it changes based on how the quality of the player, but you're paying say eight to ten million dollars for a two war player, which is a league average producer. There you go. Okay, so this is exactly what I'm getting at: is they are willing to have slightly worse production on the field to maximize the value of what they're spending. So like you, like you just said, they would like to put four me four minimum salary players into an aggregate production of slightly less than an average player than to pay the freight of an average player on the open market and get the slightly higher performance. I think we see in the game how that translates to pitching where we see this constant churn of pitchers. We see young guys who aren't throwing strikes, who just throw hard, where we see guys who have stuff but not control. We see games where they're prolonged because those pitchers are either cycled through or counted on for multiple innings. And what we see is, and you've, you've seen this as well, is the average age of players is getting younger and younger. And the time spent in the minors is getting less and less. And trust me, I'm not one to say like they got to hit these quotas like, you know, 20 years ago, where it's like, you know, th this many innings in the minors, this many at bats in the minors. And that's when you're ready to go. No, I'm cool with players who are talented getting up as early and as often as an electric as possible. Let the youth shine. But the fact of the matter is some of the pitchers and please tell me if you see this differently are being rushed to the majors to be part of that aggregate answer to avoid spending on a guy who does throw strikes. And I, I think mm -hmm. I can even think to this specifically, like when I started on this beat in the, you know, decades ago, as you like to remind people, um, <laughs> you know, you think about like who was the middle reliever who was absorbing some innings for the Cardinals, right? It was Cal Eldred sometimes, right? Right. A guy who had been a former starter who had established himself who would go out there and it was Matt holiday who kind of talked to me about this. He goes, think about like who used to come in when games were out of hand, you knew you were going to get strikes because they had to get through and they knew how to th throw strikes and they would get by. Now you go in there when a game's out of hand and it might be a guy who might walk three people. And so I, I, I think there is an element of if you raise the salary that must be paid of those zero three guys, diminish the return that teams can try to squeeze out by avoiding the high salary or the salary of an average player, that you actually get a peppier game 
because they are going to, I know this is huge, choose the better player over the aggregate. I think the problem with that is that the numbers that we're talking about are still relatively low compared to what that player would get in free agency, the veteran player, right? So you're talking about, you know, if you're four guys that are going to go on the shuttle back and forth to Memphis over the course of the year, just as an example, just using the Cardinals as an example, and and everybody does this to some degree, right? Those guys, those four guys are still going to make $700,000 over the course of the year if, or seven fifty, dollars whatever you want to raise that number to versus, say, the $2 million that you were going to pay for that other guy. I actually think that if you're looking for that specifically to happen, then that's the two plus service time players are probably the better connection to it. So sure. for those who don't understand there, there are players enter into the arbitration system after three full years in the big leagues, with the exception of the top 22% of players in service time uh, that have more than two years, but less than three years. And that was a change that happened in the eighties. That numbers actually kind of come up a little bit. It was, I think 17% at one point, I want to say maybe back in, in 2006 or so, it went to 22% from where, where it is now. But up until 81, it was all players with more than two years of service time went into the arbitration system. And so I think that to me is a much bigger, um, I don't know if deterrence is the right word, but that would have a much big, greater impact on that decision versus um, versus this. Because I, mm. I just don't see, I don't think, I mean, if, if you're going to pay four different guys, you know, and you only make major league money the, the, when, you're in the when you're in the big leagues. So whoever the four guys are that are minimum salary players are going to be $700,000 or whatever, seven fifty, whatever you want to say, 800000 on your yeah. line versus the, the two or three million you would pay for that guy, right? Like that's $2 million bucks that you're saving that you can either throw at something else or that you can, you know, if, if your, um, you know, owner doesn't necessarily want to contribute it to payroll, you know, might give to spending on infrastructure or you know, taking right. for themselves or whatever or, it is. So I don't think it's, I, to me, it's not necessarily uh, an either or because the numbers are so, well, it's a lot of money to everybody but you because you cover the Cardinals and the Post-Dispatch. For the rest of us, $700,000 wow. is a ridiculous amount of money. Um, it just in the in the grand scheme of things, it's really not all that much. Right. I, I just think if they can close that gap, that is where the discussion on the economic core influences the quality of the game. If they yeah, can but close the, the number gap has where to the be better players higher than what the union is asking for. Okay, that's fair. That's fair. That to I just me think... is like if you want to pay those zero to three guys and set the minimum at one point five, then I think we can have a discussion. But also knowing that bringing up the floor to that level is also going to probably drive the costs higher on right. those middle tier players. So I don't know that you ever necessarily fully get there. I, I just think something has to be done where the incentive is to put the better player on the field, not the better value. Well, but that's part of the, the union's argument though, too, in, in the, the discussion of service time manipulation, you know, with players who 
um, you know, spend three weeks basically in the minor leagues to either, you know, burn an option and not get service time. Or if they're not on the 40 man, it's what, like 17 days that they have to spend in the minors before they can bring up right. and the team gets an extra year of service time out of it. That seems to be more of the focus on most of the discussions is to, okay, let's get, you know, the, the Chris Bryant example is the really good one or the easy one, right? Well, let's get it so that Bryant is in the big leagues right away for those extra 17 days. Okay, great. He gets to free agency sooner. He makes more money sooner. That's great for him, but it doesn't do much for the competitive balance in there other than to allow him to choose his employer sooner, which, you know, again, baseball players, unless they're amateur free agents, don't get to choose who they're working for. They get drafted into an organization and then are there for, you know, when you count the minor leagues, usually around nine or 10 years, if they're fortunate enough to reach free agency. Well, that's, I mean, that to me, like you were talking about, like the eyewash aspect, I, I stopped short of saying that, but the argument where it's Chris Bryant, that's like an argument of one because right. how there aren't very many examples of that. Now, totally agree. There's there's a lot of angst about that at the front end of a player's career. Think about the young man from Seattle, right? Kellenic, right? Kellenic, yeah. It, how much worry was there that they were going to avoid burning him, right? And then they would delay his time. They would manipulate his time. Heck, I mean, it was a scandal because they openly acknowledged it in that meeting, right? That yeah. they that they were going to manipulate service time. Well, it really didn't in the end didn't matter because he came up and he had to go back because he struggled. Um, you know, it's the, the Bryant one stands out, but trying to find other examples of that is difficult. I mean, it's because one a lot of times players, yeah. if that, right. I mean, you know, some of these guys, you it's, it's one to two or three guys that you worry about. They're like, oh my gosh, they're going to manipulate him. Oh my God. But then by the time the guy arrives, you're like, well, he doesn't belong here to begin with. You know, man, those Cactus League stats look really good, but it's a whole nother thing to be out here in the National League West for a few weeks. Yeah, I mean, I can think of maybe a he does of need more time. I can think of a couple examples with it too. Like Vlad Guerrero Jr. would have been another one, but he got hurt in spring training, right? And so, right. Well, that made yep. it real easy, right? So, okay, well, we can send him down, um, you know, and then and then you end up getting the extra year of control with him. Aloy Jimenez was sent out, signed a contract extension, opened with the White Sox on the roster. The Phillies right. avoided doing that with Scott Kingery, who had had a monster spring. And they signed to a big contract extension. And then he struggled enough that he's been dropped from the roster. You know, right. the, the the Astros kind of started that with uh, Jonathan Singleton. You know, this is almost a decade ago now. Singleton's in minor league camp now with the Brewers. But he had gotten a long-term extension before he'd made his big league debut. Evan White with the Mariners, another one who's had to go back to the minors and battled injuries this year. So, like, yeah, it's imperfect in all of this. But there are – there. I, I to me, I think that the, you're right in that – we spend a lot of time focusing on those because they are the outlier players, right? Those are the guys we want to talk about anyway. They're right. the stars or, or the potential future stars. They're the hyped players. And so we lose sight of what how it impacts uh, or, or what's more important to impact the others. And that's why, I, I mean, I think that's why there's this fight that's brewed on you know, the arbitration numbers is that the, the players see that as an avenue to try and ensure that younger players who are being counted on more are able to get more in that that third season, whereas the league is holding firm because they've had it this way largely for 40 years, and they know that that's 
that that it doesn't just impact that third year, but the fourth, fifth, and sixth as well, while they're mm-hmm. still under team control. So, and in fact, yeah. I would make the argument that if the if the players really wanted to try and alter that system, the arbitration stuff, okay, great. Like that's if you can get some concessions there, fine. But if teams are going to value the years of control, make them value all of the years of control. That's Absolutely. been my argument for years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good is point. That Great point. One of the big reasons why we see um, kind of the middle class being tamped down in free agency is really since the late 90s or early 2000s, the number of free agents have gone from like 100 or so to like 400 or so, right. at least guys that have been, you know, major league time that whether they've been, you know, non-tendered or DFA'd, but the number of players that aren't tendered contracts who are in the arbitration number, you know, that's 30 or 40 generally quality players. Most of them are league average to below, but they're guys that you need on a roster and on a competitive roster. And they're way better than the replacement level player that you can, you know, call up a triple A. And when I say replacement level, I'm talking about you know, using wins above replacement, like a, a guy who's 20% better, worse than the league average performance. So like that to me would be a much better route for the players to try and fight for, albeit one that would be much more difficult in making teams value all six years of of that. So when this lockout fog lifts, which we trust that at some point in time it will, um, it might cost a few games, it might lead to an expedited spring training. What kind of frenzy are we looking at transaction wise? As you did your audit of the 30 teams, how many of them look like complete teams at this point? Well, not very many. I think, hang on, let me pull up my list. Who looks pretty complete? Um, I mean, I think everyone, even the ones that we have ranked highly, um, and again, like I'm trying to do this with, with not making the assumption that any move is going to come. Right. Uh, yeah, that's what all, I mean. Right. Like, so like you look like, at the Dodgers and they're like, who, who are their five starters? I mean, they've got – I mean, I can give you five starters for them. I mean, they have some talent sure. there. but it, Is it's, that a five starters of an NL pennant team? Well, I mean, some of that is beyond – is to some degree beyond their control too, or sure. at least part of it is beyond their control with regards to, to Trevor Bauer. So, um, you know, Houston is pretty close, although they could really use a shortstop, right? Like <laughs> Toronto is fairly close, so they could use a left-handed bat. The White Sox have – um, you know, probably a corner outfield spot that they could fill, although they're they're really close in that regard. I think Milwaukee, I don't see Milwaukee doing anything really crazy beyond what they've done so far. I mean, I think, mm-hmm. you know, especially the way Rowdy Telez performed for them down the stretch, I don't know that they're necessarily going to go down the first base route. I mean, I think, I think it's, you start getting down and like maybe of the contending teams, the most complete is, uh, I don't know, or at least the roster that's going to look the most similar is San Diego. Maybe. Yeah. That's fair to say. San Diego, they have a lot of guys coming back from injury. So, yeah, I mean, I I don't think anybody's complete. I mean, we're, we, we were like 35% of the way through free agency in, in one of the best free agent classes we've ever seen when the whole world shut down and two of the best players went to the, the one of the worst teams. So it's, there's still a lot of room for every team to improve either via the free agents that are left on the market, and there are a lot of really good ones, or via trade, which we have not seen any semblance of a trade market as of yet. Yeah, well, and they haven't been able to talk during this time, right? You know, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, to even kind of give a sense of how that might accelerate. If anything, that might like cause them to pause a little bit, but we might see a little bit more trade action in spring or coming out of spring than we usually do. 
That could be fascinating. Yeah, I mean, I think maybe a little bit similar to what was the year that Machado and Harper signed? Was that 18? Mm-hmm. 19. Yeah. 19. In the 19, there were some deals in spring training. There were some complex trades in spring training. There was a three team with the uh, Yankees, Rays, Diamondbacks. It comes to mind. Oh, right I see away. what you're saying. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know what I mean? So, like, so that was a free agent market that moved very, very slowly, despite the fact that there were some quality players on it. So I think maybe you would see some of that. Yeah, I think that's that's entirely possible. But I also think it depends on, you know, how quickly like all of it's going to depend on what the finances look like afterwards, right? So like depending on how this shakes out, like what if the A's look like they're getting closer to a stadium and things are are better for them financially out of this than they anticipated? Well, are they maybe they're less likely to move, you know, Olson, Chapman, Montas, Manaya. <laughs> Bassett. Right, <laughs> Laureato. Yeah. Right, like Trevino, well, you have a lot of arbitration lot of hearings. You have a lot of arbitration hearings still hanging in the air. So you got to imagine that those will be under previous rules. Well, everything this year will with the likely spirit, work under previous rules, and right because that was the spirit in which they were tendered contracts. Right. But so, I also think I, that those those hearings will happen in season potentially too. I believe that right. happened in '95, where right. players were like on off days having to fly to New York for their arbitration hearings. Well, that's yeah, and that's kind of what I mean is like you look at some of these guys, like even like like a Richard Blyer, Blyer, right. I was fascinated by that. Like he, you know, pretty strong lefty reliever, been good for the Marlins arbitration. You know, is he less likely to stick around? Because what if they lose that arbitration and all Mm -hmm. of a sudden they're spending more than their financial structure maybe has in place for a setup reliever. Right. And then another team makes that deal a little bit earlier in the season, just because his salary wasn't set until an April 21st arbitration hearing. I mean, it's just fascinating. Plus it takes you past that, that so the teams have outs in arbitration contracts or, or, or those right. pre <clears throat> pre six year contracts where um, based on, you know, like they can either give, what is it? Is it 45 or, or 30 days severance? So it's either one sixth or one, right. one quarter of their, their salary, depending on the date in spring training that, that they're at where they could, you know, if you made $2 million in arbitration and um, you, you know, you want a deal, like they could get rid of you for a portion of that cost so they, they can release you with severance pay. So like, the, yeah, all of that gets impacted for sure. And then, you know, how's it going to play out? And and the other part that I think is a little bit, um, you know, at least worth keeping an eye on is what do revenue streams look like coming out of this? You know, how mad are people, right? Like if we miss right. a significant part of the season or even the first couple of days of the season, you know, in 72, which was the first work stoppage that affected games, when the players came back with 13 days into the season, opening day in a lot of spots had 3,000 fans. Now, I don't think we're going to only see 3,000 fans, but you will see some spots that are not sellouts as a result if there are games missed. So that impacts revenue. Does that end up taking potentially a, a, a team that would acquire somebody like that off the books? Does it force a team to make a deal earlier than they intended to? All of those things are things that we just don't know the answer to and we're only going to be able to play Monday morning quarterback. Where were the Cardinals in your audit? Um, Do you see them as a pretty complete team at this point? Yeah, pretty good. I mean, I think complete team, like for my brothers, no. But are they a largely finished product from what they're trying to do? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think that's fair. You've written about that, right? Like, it's not like, 
you know, I, I think they could use a second baseman, but I know they've got Nolan Gorman coming, um, which they at least seem to think can play second base, right? So, um, yeah. you know, Wait, I you think got, they need a second baseman. The guy won a gold glove there. Yes. Huh. I think Tommy Edmond is better served playing multiple different positions rather than being an everyday guy. Personally, I think that takes advantage of a lot of his strengths and that he can do mm-hmm. a lot of different things. Um, you know, he had pretty pronounced splits. Um, there are some things that, I, I mean, I, I really like Tommy Edmond as a player. I just think that that's a better role for him than being at second base, especially if you could find a way to add a left-handed, like a, a, a pretty solid left-handed bat to that lineup. I feel like that's something that they've, they've been lacking for a while, mm-hmm. but you know, I don't see them addressing shortstop, which is the other spot you could theoretically go for that, but there's not really that left-handed hitting shortstop that's available now. Um, and certainly not at their price point. So, you know, they're going to go reliever maybe, right? Like, yeah. is there another depth starter that they could do? Yeah, they're pretty complete. I have them, Let's see, among National League teams, and the Dod- we haven't done the Dodgers yet, but I have them ahead of them. I really like Milwaukee. I have them pretty high. Atlanta. So I've got them as like the fourth best team. In the National League? Yeah, I got them right about the spot of San Diego. San Diego's got a lot of talent, but a lot of question marks with all these pitchers coming back from injuries. So I think they're they're pretty good, but I can see the Cardinals being in that. I don't think there's that much difference between them and the Brewers. I think based on... Um, you know, what we've seen from the early projections from fan graphs, it looks like they have the Cardinals slightly ahead of Milwaukee in that division. And so, yeah, I think they're, they're just about that spot. I mean, I think, listen, they've got Goldschmidt, good. Arenado, who I think is going to be better offensively in his second year. Um, you know, the Tyler O'Neill story is one that I'm really interested to follow. I think Bader's strides offensively were completely overlooked uh, Mm -hmm. nationally on how much better he got offensively in addition to being one of the best defenders and center. And I think there's more in the tank for Carlson. I don't think Carlson's going to be like this perennial all-star, but I think he's, you know, I think the power numbers will come as he gets a little more comfortable. And I think you can see a 25 homer corner bat. So I think there's a lot to like with what the Cardinals are doing. I, I think there's a little bit of, of concern, I think, with the rotation and the depth of it. Um, and I'm sure that they would love to have somebody to kind of take that Garcia role in the pen to that actually throws strikes because that was such a huge yeah. issue last year in the first half of the season. But I think they're a pretty good team as it stands right now. Where's the gap then that has you suggesting the Brewers are ahead of them? I don't think it's I don't think it's very far. I mean, I think the fact that the Brewers run out three potential Cy Young candidates in their rotation is probably the biggest thing to me. You know, I mean, I love Jack Flaherty. I think Flaherty rebounds. You know, I, Wayno, what Wayno's done is great. But to me, I, I just really like Milwaukee's rotation. They have, um, you know, arguably the top reliever in baseball anchoring that. And, and I think – um, you know, I think it's a good bet that Yelich bounces back. I think what you saw over that three-month stretch before he got hurt from Adamas is pretty close to what you'll get. I think he's an above-average regular at that position. So mm-hmm. I think there's a couple things there that, that you know, they have a little bit of attention. Yeah, Renfro's one of those guys that, like, I, I love Hunter Renfro because I think he does – he's one of those guys that, like – he's kind of like an eighties throwback player in that he Mm -hmm. runs really well. He's got a crazy arm defensive metrics really seem to like him. But I think if you watch him, you kind of go, I don't know, like he'll hit some long home runs, but the approach isn't great. And so as a down lineup hitter, he's great. And he's a fun player to watch because he's, he's a crazy athlete. And like he, like he really runs well when he got to Mississippi state, he was a catcher. 
which is to me is like unbelievable because this is one of the best athletes you'll see. Like he, he could, he's athletic enough. I think he could play in the NFL. Like he's that kind of an athlete. Really? Wow. He's, I mean, he really runs well and, or at least, you know, maybe a couple of years ago he could have, but like, I think there's, there's, you know, there's, he's not without his charms, but I don't think he's as good a hitter, like a hitter hitter as Garcia was in right. And so I think they, mm. they, you know, they, add some power and they add some speed and they add a little bit of arm strength and, and a strong metric defender. But I think from a, you know, if you're going to pick between the two guys, just based on the bat, I would take Garcia because I think Garcia is Garcia is just a little bit better hitter than what Renfro is. You can pitch to Renfro. So who then benefits more from a DH? Like if you have the Brewers slightly ahead of the Cardinals, but maybe their offense needs Yelich to be much better. Yes. Um, then who and, and the Cardinals, you know, they need their offense to improve as well, uh, more as a group than, say, an individual, though getting more from shortstop would be huge for them. Um, they add depth to that lineup. Who's helped more by a DH and how does that change things? If if the Brewers count on Telesby in first base and Renfro being right field, do they have an upgrade at DH that, that changes their offense? No, but I don't necessarily think the Cardinals do either. Do they? Do you think the Cardinals? I mean, well, they're they're counting designated hitter. Uh, well, no. I I mean, I think they they could shop for one. Um, I guess both teams could. I mean, you see Nelson Cruz pop up in Milwaukee. That changes their look quite a bit. Um, the Cardinals are banking on you know Juan Yepes, a young guy who crushed Triple yeah. A pitching and then did really well out there in Arizona in the Arizona Fall League. Um, sort of a a player who to maybe liken him to some a player we might see 10, 15 years ago as kind of the guy who crushes fastballs off the bench, who faces, you know, the closer um, just because of his success against fastballs or faces the the fire breathing dragon coming out of the bullpen. Um, You know, they, they like him. They'd like to see him get a run. Um, They also really are intrigued by Newt Bar, who has done more than any prospect to advance his cause Mm -hmm. and rise on the depth chart. Um, A guy who had a strong Arizona fall league, really just appears done with triple a to be honest um could right. be a fourth outfielder um but could be the left-handed option at yep. dh or you know they they see those two guys being you know sub-ins so that they can get their regulars you know that kind of half day off tony Larusso used to talk about but that that it's their addition to the lineup that the that the dh would allow yeah i mean i think i think you can play a little bit of the same game with milwaukee if you know, Keston Cura comes closer to bouncing back to what we saw in 2018, you, you know, like yeah, yeah. Cura, Cura has a, a pretty strong pedigree and a top 10 pick in the draft and the top college hitter that year. And defense has always been an issue for him, but up until really, and I, I don't count 2020 for much either way. Um, you know, like he did not have a good 2020, but he really did not have a good 2021. And I think there are probably some things that he can do to adjust there that might give them a little bit of power down in the lineup. And he has a little hmm. more experience than those guys do. So, yeah, I mean, but the, the question is like, are either of those teams really going to go and add somebody externally? Like what's the probably price not. point that's going to go, you know, like the Cardinals have been resistant to add really any other big, it seems like it's the one big piece of winter move, right? Last year it was Arenado. Who was the starter this year? Now I'm blanking on Steven Matz. Steven Matz, right? So, okay, like they had a pretty serviceable starter. I like Matz. I think he's pretty good. But it doesn't seem like they're looking to add Matz and another, you know, 
everyday type player. And and that's a shame to some degree, whether it's the Cardinals or Milwaukee, but like you mentioned Cruz, but like Jorge Soler is out there too as a free agent. Yeah. And Soler yep. is a DH candidate. You know, somebody he's hitting seventh in a lineup, talking about a guy who just mashes fastballs. He had a really rotten first half of the year in Kansas City, put it together in the second half. But as a guy who probably is a low batting average, decent walk rate, crazy, stupid power guy, like he should be interesting to some National League teams. And those two teams would see a huge benefit, I think, from adding someone like him or Nelson Cruz. Nelson Cruz, Nelson Cruz to me is like a huge difference maker on a club, not just for his presence in the lineup, but more importantly for his presence in the clubhouse. This is a top yeah, five human yeah, being yeah. in baseball. Like he is like Nelson Cruz is the best, like the best. He changes a clubhouse when he walks into it. He's unbelievable one of the best teammates ever, one of the most respected voices in the game. Like if you really want to take it to another level, like, you know, you, you I mean, the, listen, the Cardinals putting him with him and Goldschmidt kind of leading the charge there. Watch out. I know Paul doesn't like to think of him that way, but everybody looks up to what Paul does. Like the, that to me would be a huge culture changer for that organization. If they went down that road, I just, there's nothing in the recent history that makes me think that they're going to. I, I think you, you touched on like Paul Goldschmidt, not liking the description there. You're, <laughs> you're, you're so right about that. Um, my little, I don't know the, the, my view of the Cardinals say last year, but really going into this year, it, I think it still applies is the the Cardinals are at their best when Goldschmidt is the presence that drives them and Arenado is the personality. Yes, yes. You know, if they take on the personality of Arenado, it's a really good team. If they rely on the presence of Goldschmidt, that's an exceptional team. And it really, you know, that that 17 consecutive wins that seven game 17 game winning streak now that you know they're not going to do that they haven't done that before in club history but the style of play they had there man they were swashbuckling defensively and they were um they pitched well um they were aggressive with their defense um and they were reliable sometimes even plotting but some but often timely offensively obviously tyler o'neill was a big part of that yeah some baiters improvement was a big part of that but it was kind of the steady metronome of knowing that Paul Goldschmidt was going to be Paul Goldschmidt that made the the kind of offensive engine run. And it's like, well, that's the style of play that makes them best. That's when they're they're best. They they they're swashbuckling and aggressive and dynamic defensively, and they're pulling off those, you know, the phone call, you know, the phone number play. Um, and and they're just they're doing they're stealing hits, they're stealing plays, they're relying, they're they're building. Um, a wall behind their their pitcher and helping him out and offensively I mean could could you remember much about their offense during that 17 game winning streak probably no. not but it was always there and I think that's the style that serves them best I mean I think I think to me Arenado is a little bit like he can be a little bit variable offensively because he's such an aggressive hitter that right. you're going to see some some fits and starts but his at bats with men in scoring position are just stupid like he's he's a guy that you want up in those big spots because I think he he has his best moments in those that's when he really locks I, in I think he brings a brashness that the Cardinals need Well he you know, plays like, with that's a one thing that they you know what I mean like he's yeah, just yeah. he's just well, I mean such I don't I don't speak energy. well I I don't yeah. either but 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 you know it's close. It's a little a bit like zest a for life. Fire. He brings a yes. zest for life. Yes, yeah. but there, yeah, there's a there's an energy to the way Nolan Arenado plays. But yeah. I will say that I don't think he's alone in that. I just think he's the biggest name in that. 
Bader plays with that energy too. Harrison Bader plays like his hair is on fire. I think there's a little more of that in Tyler O'Neill than than I realize. You know, one of the sneaky things with the Cardinals, I think, that gets lost is how athletic that outfield is. I didn't oh, yeah. appreciate Doesn't that O'Neill could here. move. Well, like no, it can we fly. But you got to remember, you watch them 150 times a year. Even no, if I'm if I'm a, a 200 times with a year. spring training, yeah. But I mean, like you watch them in games that count 150 or so times a year. You do take a week off now. You take a week off. I still watch the games. Okay. So you watch them 162 times a year without yeah. playoffs in, in games that matter. I might see them 10 or 15. And I think you really have to talk to people to get a sense of, of where O'Neill is. And, and I think the metrics help with that too. But yeah, Tyler yeah, O'Neill. Top 5% in speed and top 5% in exit velocity. That's yeah, a pretty rare combo. Really strange. Really bizarre. And listen, crazy high strikeout rate and like, do I think the offensive numbers could take a step back a little bit? But sure. there's not a whole lot of left. Like left field is a pretty dire position right now in Major League Baseball, and there aren't a whole lot of them that can score from first on a double. You know what I mean? Like Tyler That's O'Neill point. is scores backpedaling on a double. You know what I mean? So like, there's you there's you an might just give him an idea there. Group. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it'd be kind of fun if he did that. So, like, I think yeah. there's a there are some other dynamics that play in that feed off Arenado there. Goldschmidt is just like. I mean, listen, I covered, I, I mean, I was a Diamondbacks broadcaster, so I was around Paul in 16, 17, and 18. And there is no steadier human being alive than Paul Goldschmidt. And, you know, he does not want, as you know, any attention for it whatsoever. He is a total lunch pail, go to work kind of guy. But the, everybody kind of gravitates towards that because he is just that presence in the middle of the lineup. He doesn't want to be the guy that everybody is focused on. He will stand up and answer all the questions if you need him to, because that's what a real leader does. But he just is, he is so consistent in everything that he does that. Yeah, I, I agree. Like if you just need to just plug Paul into the, the two or three spot in the order and let him go. Behind the scenes, he's more vocal than he lets on, as you know. Yes, 100%. In these baseball meetings or in the hitter meetings or when they're doing base running things, you know, he, he's he's the he's the he's the guy in class who is who leads by substance and isn't yes. afraid to speak up. It's who was a really better, who was a better base runner, him or Albert? Whoa, wait, what? That's an interesting question. Who's a better base runner, Paul Goldschmidt or Albert Pujols? Yeah, Albert was a great Ooh. base runner. Albert was a great base runner. I saw Paul him was score. a great base runner. Paul takes the best turns of anybody in the league. Well, and he thinks, uh, and has he, have you talked to him about his explanation on some of these? These are things that like he practices. Mm-hmm. They had a thing once, right, where yeah, he talked can. about like uh, in spring training, and he was telling them where to hit the first base with their front mm-hmm. toe mm-hmm. and not aim for the middle of the bag or not aim for the front of the bag, but just the very lip of the bag because he, he was like, that's all you need to get to, and then step over the bag. Like get there as fast as possible with just the front of your toe, and like he thinks in those terms, and he tries to explain. And like there are times where the, like Dylan Carlson has talked about how um, a tip on base running that he got from Paul Goldschmidt is why he scored from second on a, <laughs> on a play, and mm-hmm. uh, it's just so fascinating. Um, I saw Albert Pujols once score from second on a ground ball to second at Coors Field, ground ball to second base, Rocky second baseman. Looks pools, looks at him right at second base, goes, well, he's just going to go to third, then tosses a rainbow to first base. Like, I mean, the, the, there was probably 50 feet, 60 feet, maybe 
between the second baseman and the first baseman at this time. <laughs> and he just was like, well, that's a hard throw to third. I'll let him get that base. Right. And so he turns and just lollipops a rainbow towards Todd Helton, who screams, no, like you could hear him go, no. And then Albert, realizing what happened, just runs on from third because the ball was just arcing down <sighs> towards first base. Helton had no chance. It was it, it, was, it was like the parent watching the kid let go of the helium balloon, knowing you couldn't stop it. <laughs> Todd Helton's look of anguish as Albert wheels around third to score on the lollipop throw, on the casual laissez-faire throw. And that's the winning run. Unbelievable. I, but to answer your question, um, Paul Goldschmidt is the better base runner. Paul Goldschmidt reminds me of Scott Rowland, who was one of the best yeah. base runners I've ever seen who wasn't like – uh, you know, lightning. I, I don't mean this is to, to denigrate Paul at all, but I think he is more risk adverse on the bases than Albert was. Albert would try and sneak one by you a little Albert's, more. Albert's than, invincible, than, invisible yeah. cloak that he talked yeah. about. Yeah. 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 Mistri- mischief managed to continue the Harry Potter references in the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> he would have the, they're like, is he invisible over there? there there'd be times where the pitcher would be like, well, he's not going to steal because he's Albert Pools, right? He's not going to steal. And then the pitcher would pay no attention and then all of a sudden go into his windup and Albert was already at second. Yeah. It's like, what, what are you doing? Yeah, yeah, you're right. I saw you're Paul right. have a 30, a 30 stolen base season, though, and it's not like Paul is all that fast. So, like, it's just he's it's pretty he, remarkable. He just knows. But, I mean, I, I saw a season guys, where Yadier Molina led the Cardinals in steals. And all those guys worked with Dave McKay, and that's probably yeah. the common thread in all of it because Dave might be Great point. the best base running coach in baseball history and the best outfield coach in baseball history. Uh, yeah. Uh, Willie McGee works with him now, and it's really interesting. Um, because you see guys improve, and that's actually been you. So you talk about something that maybe didn't get as much attention. Harrison Bader's base running, um, he's got the speed to do it, and the improvement he made base running wise. Tommy Edmond can get there. These, these are guys who can steal more. T- Tyler O'Neill has the speed to do it. It's remarkable. Um, you had the Cardinals fourth in the National League, yeah. and that leads me to the last thing I kind of wanted to ask you about: is do you see the National League as vulnerable? I mean, it's been it's been the Dodgers for the most part saying, well, they're the clear favorite to win the pennant. The Braves overtook them and won the World Series this past year. But the Braves don't have Freddie Freeman at the moment. They might, but they don't. Um, But the Dodgers have been the king of the NL for a while. Mm -hmm. And the Giants overtook them in the division. Um, But I think that was not something that was counted on. The, the, The constant has been the Dodgers. Do you do you think the National League is a little bit more? Maybe volatile, vulnerable is not the word. Maybe volatile is. Maybe is it is it more wide open this year? Um. Well, the Mets are going to be better, right? Scherzer think, insists so. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I think they're going to be better. I mean, they've got an owner who you know, it, the, he doesn't care what ends up happening in the lockout. Like he's going to spend till he gets to the number that he's comfortable with, which could be six hundred million dollars. Doesn't matter. He just wants to win. Yeah. He grew up a Mets fan. The guy is like the next three which, richest owners in baseball. I don't think are worth the same as Steve Cohen. Right? He's worth fourteen no. billion dollars. Like he's a throwback owner. He just wants to win. That's all he cares about. So like this is his favorite team. This is like this is walking around money for him. So I think the Mets are going to be better. I do think Atlanta is still going to be formidable because they will have a first baseman who is not currently on their roster, whether that's Freeman or somebody else. Um, Anthony Rizzo, Atlanta Brave. Matt Olson. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, I know. It would make sense. Um, But Rizzo would be another one. I was just musing. 
Yeah, I mean Rizzo. I mean Rizzo would be a fit, you know. I mean he would be the the least expensive, at least in terms of the combination of dollars and prospects, um, and certainly would be good. But the Braves will be good. I think the Phillies will be a little bit better. The Nationals aren't going to be very good. The Marlins, it could go either way. They have such a good win now pitching staff, but they're so thin offensively. Led the by Central, former Cardinal Sandy Alcantara. Yeah, who is a way better pitcher than I thought he was going to. So end up good, boy. He's he is he. Speaking of throwbacks, like that's a two hundred inning machine. He's great. Yeah. Um, yep. You know the Central is really to me the Brewers and the Cardinals. You know the I think the the Reds. I, I'll be interested to see how the Reds come out of this. Like, are they gonna? Are they moving money around to be able to add a little bit like that? That could they could just kind of reallocate resources on that roster and be relatively competitive. I don't think the Giants are quite as good as they were last year. I don't think they're awful, but I don't necessarily think that they're a playoff team. I think the Padres will be better. I think the Dodgers are still good. So, you know, that's what eight teams that are legitimate playoff contenders for six or seven playoff spots, depending on what the CBA ends up with. Um, maybe top heavy is the right way to look at it. Cause I don't think the Cubs are going to get there huh. um, this, this year. I don't, I, I don't think the Rockies and Diamondbacks are going to end up being competitive this year. So um, when you say top heavy though, do you mean like the ones at the top are all comparable or they're just a handful of contenders? That For example, like how close is the gap between if you have the Cardinals fourth and you have the Dodgers first, first or the Mets second, What's the golf there? I think the golf between the Dodgers and everybody else in the National League is still pretty okay. Good. Even with so, I mean, their shortstop yeah. gone, and yeah, but their their shortstop's their gone, but they gone. put Trey Turner in that spot. Sure. <laughs> so, like, yeah, who, no, you really fair. could have been the MVP in the National League last year. You know, they, you know, Gavin Lux had a strong finish to the year, and while there's questions about him defensively, he's a pretty good offensive player. Um, well, you know, he might not have to play the outfield, for goodness sake. I mean, Kershaw, Kersh- well, that, that actually might end up being the best spot for him because he's had some throwing issues from second. So yeah, um, that's at least Gosh. something to keep an eye on. They brought back Chris Taylor. Like, that gets overlooked. Chris Taylor's really good. No, no, he's really good. And and Kershaw was well, on wait, the Cardinal fans are aware of how good he is, just yeah. so you know. Oh, no, I know. I, know. I mean, he, he did end Sorry. their season. Yeah. Uh, no Kershaw's to probably going to be back. Kershaw's going to be back probably. What about Kenley I mean, Jansen? Who's going to close? Joe well, Kelly. He ain't coming back, is he? Well, but Blake Trinan has been one of the better relievers in the National yeah, League the last couple of years. So, like, and, and they find relievers. Like, remember, remember in 2016 when like Joe Blanton was the best reliever in the National League, yeah. throwing 75 innings for them. So, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. I, and and they have a really deep farm system, and they have some young arms. Like, at some point, I would guess that in the the month of August or September, you're going to see Bobby Miller in the big leagues <laughs> in the same similar way to how Dustin May and, and Walker Bueller broke yep. in. I watched Bobby Miller this fall and walked away going, holy smokes. Like, that's a guy that throws 100. He was their, their what, second rounder out of Louisville, first rounder out of Louisville in 2020. Like, that's a huge arm. And, like, it's all the elements are there. So they still have a really strong pipeline that they can deal from, too. So, you know, I think, again, like, we're frozen in time, and the Dodgers really haven't done anything other than bringing back Chris Taylor. And, you know, Kershaw kind of made it sound like he's going to pitch again. And if he does, I have a really tough time thinking that he's going to go anywhere other than the Dodgers. I know the Rangers would like him, but I think L.A. is the most likely spot. And then you're adding some other premium piece because they have both the financial wherewithal and the trade capital to be able to add someone that can upgrade that roster. So, you know, whether it's signing Freddie Freeman or trading for somebody major that might be available for a couple of years, like – 
all those things are in play with LA. So I think it's still a pretty wide gap between the Dodgers and everybody else. Last year, not not last year doesn't change anything in that for me. The, the perception of the Cardinals locally is that they will stop short of going, you know, quote unquote, all in or stop yeah. short of making that final step from contender to favorite. Yes. And it kind totally of sounds agree. like. Totally agree. It's so frustrating to me as somebody who's not a Cardinals fan, but who watches it and sees like, hey, we've got this pretty good collection of talent. Like, I just want them to make that one more move to push them forward. Right. Like they, they just always feel like they're one short in one spot. And I want them to make that move really badly. Now that's again, like I don't have any of their internal information and like any of that, but I feel like that's been the story the last five years or so is the like, God, they're just like, they always feel like they're one player short. Like give me a left-handed bat. that can play in the middle of the infield who can hit with a little pop. Like, please give me that guy. And all of a sudden my feeling about the Cardinals changes. You know what I mean? Like that to me is a big, that that's a big thing that I think is, I do think it's a reasonable criticism. I doubt the Cardinals front office thinks it's a reasonable criticism, but I do think it's a reasonable criticism of them in that they have stopped that one player short of getting it like, like, and, and like when they did push in, it was like for Dexter Fowler and Brett Cecil, right? Like it was, well, but that was scramble. Like that was, they didn't get Adam Eaton. Oh my gosh. That's what it costs to trade for a guy like Adam Eaton. We're not prepared to play that steep a price. Right. We'd rather pay dollars. Oh, we got to add an extra year. Ooh. All right. Well, we're taken away from a rival to get a leadoff hitter. Can't trade for him because we don't want to give up that steep a price prospect wise. All okay, right, fine, let's go but for the dollars. Somebody at the top of the lineup, you're not getting a huge like, and nothing. I'm not Dex, defending so it. Love, I'm explaining. You know I mean? it. Yeah, I know. I understand yeah, what yeah, the explanation yeah, is. Yeah. And I remember John Mazalak saying, "Well, listen, if you're rational on every free agent, you're going to finish second on everyone, right? That's a some well some there for a while. They did, it, and they did. But then it's just the ones that they chose to push in on were the ones where we went. Oh, are you sure you wanted to go down that road? So like. I think that there's, I think it's, it is a valid criticism of what has happened over the last five years or so. And it's something I would love to see them address because they're like, they should be the behemoth in that division right now with the Cubs taking whatever step back they've had to do or decided to do, I should say like, this should be the Cardinals division for the taking. Milwaukee is, that's a great front office. It's good ownership. Like they spend way above their market size, right? Like that's the, the smallest market in major league baseball. And yet they constantly put together a competitive team. The Cardinals to me feel like they just need that, that, that if they could go for that one more piece and it doesn't need to be like a 10 year deal for a 30 year old guy, it can be via trade to be able to add someone who's going to be there for a year or two Mm -hmm. to help anchor that lineup or, or, you know, help front that rotation with Flaherty, especially with Wainwright, you know, probably done after this year. Like those guys I think are are the ones that they're just missing right now where you could do that one more piece of heavy lifting now and then adding an extra pieces at the deadline to make you more dangerous in October (laughs) versus being in a position where you feel like you need to trade for that guy on July 31st when the prices are a little bit higher. I'll take it a step further. I think it's not just a fair criticism. I think it is actively their business model. Oh, I mean, it's most teams, isn't it? Come just shy, get in, see what happens. But yeah, stay just shy because that one last step, that's that's a significant spending and high risk. And the Cardinals and a lot of other teams 
are risk averse when it comes to those high dollars. It's why they talk themselves several times out of pursuing Max Scherzer when in each instance he would be that last step. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think it necessarily has to be a high dollar guy. It can be a high cost acquisition via trade. You know, well, like I mean, that, but that's the same thing for them. I mean, largely. Yeah. Figure, yeah. But, but that's the whole, like, it goes back to one of the most important. And I mean, they the didn't worst. give up, they didn't want to give up Bader or O'Neill, Bader or O'Neill. They didn't want to give up them up for Zach Wheeler. And now you go, well, that probably worked out for them, I guess, because two months of Zach Wheeler, you know, and now they wouldn't have Bader or O'Neill. But you could argue that not having Wheeler for two months meant that they weren't a playoff team right. or weren't as good um, once they got to the playoffs and they didn't have that final piece. Um, you know, this past year, their patience, if they want to call it that, cost them their division. Yeah. You know, the, the the Brewers made the move that they needed. They saw the guy who was not a fit anymore for his team. They made the move early in the season for an area of obvious need. The Cardinals did not. They were like, we're going to rely on our young guys. We're going to rely on our aggregate. We're going to find a guy off waivers maybe. And even then they did that late. You know, I, I, I can't imagine that they couldn't have gone and got J.A. Happ in June. And instead right. they got him at the deadline. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. And I and I understand, like, listen, it's the the one of the most important books I think that has been written in the last 20 years was Baseball Between the Numbers, which was a baseball perspectives book, which broke down a lot of it. And the best yep. and the worst chapter in it is the one about why Billy Beans, you know what, doesn't work in the playoffs. And I think too many executives have adopted that philosophy of we just need to get there. The playoffs are a crapshoot anyway. Who knows what's going to happen? You can be the Dodgers and be this incredible team and, you know, lose because, because Joe Kelly gives up a home run and Howie Kendrick goes off and like all those things. And yeah. Okay. That's great. But the more talent you have, the better your odds are of insulating against that. I mean, that's where depth, that's what the Dodgers have done really well is depth, right? Like, Adding talent helps to protect that. It does change the odds. Does it change it 15 percentage points? Probably not. Does it change it five? Maybe, but could that five be enough? Yeah. And if it isn't, like the worst thing that happens is that you've, you're either out some money or you're yeah. out a couple of players who you liked, but hopefully not as much as the ones that you <laughs> capped if you're scouting yeah. your organization properly. So I, yeah. I just don't I, – I hear that argument a lot. I understand the argument. I know where it comes from because you're right. Like anything can happen in a short series. Luck plays a disproportionate factor, but the goal is to win. And the best players give you the best chance to win. That's a that's very good way to end it there. You man, you know how to close a, sh- close a show there with like a nice <laughs> like punctuation. <laughs> yeah, no, that was good. And I, I'll take a hint, man. We've talked here no. for this. This is going to set a record for the longest, best podcast in baseball. Oh, we had yeah, a lot but- to cover. And I appreciated it, man. Well, I'm happy to do it. You know, I love talking ball with you. You're a good friend, and um, I love just talking baseball, and I hope I get to see you this summer, too. Yeah, well, you'll see me. You'll see me unless they only unless they only play a season long enough to only play division games, I guess. Gosh. <laughs> the All-Star game, at least. So <laughs> Definitely see you at the All-Star game at Dodger Stadium. I'm looking forward to that. That'll be That'll fun. Be fun. Um, yeah. So can I, can, we, can I tell you one other thing? Well, two other things I have in my yeah. office here. Okay, because you talked about your artwork. So I do have um, the Pearl Jam poster from when they played in St. Louis. Okay. It was a gift. I I went to the concert. It was a gift. It was really cool for my my wife because it has a red bird on a bat, 
which is kind of slick looking, right? So it's right. Pearl Jam with the concert band. Of horses, How much do you think that killed Vetter to put that together? Well, in that it was so. I, I mentioned that, and I think that's why my wife got it for me because I was like, you know, he's a huge Cubs fan. And later on, um, one of one of the more unbelievable days of my life on this beat was there when the the Cubs beat the um, Pirates in that one game playoff in 2015, right? Yeah, Arietta, all that group. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, you were there. There's a photo that the that's gone around about my reaction to Jake Arietta lighting up a cigar near a plastic sheet. Um, <laughs> not pictured as the plastic sheet, so it just looks like I'm amazed at his cigar. But no, the 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 Boy Scout in me is fearful for my life because of the uh. plastic sheet that's near a butane torch. Um, but whatever. Um, but in that mix of that uh, celebration in the in the in the in the Cubs clubhouse. You know, so someone tugs on my shoulder or on my on my like my elbow, right? And uh, and goes, "Hey, St. Louis guys, this is what it's like." And I turn around and it's Eddie Vedder. Really? Yeah. That's crazy. Isn't that is he goes, "St. Louis guy." That's is, awesome. Is this Saint what it's Louis like? Guy, is this what it's like? Hey, he knew who you were. <laughs> yeah, we'd been introduced before the game. Um, ah, okay. We were introduced before the game. Um, and actually, he talked to me, and he gave me a quote from my story, which was amazing, before the game, where he said, St. Louis has what we want. And he was talking about not like not like that day, not like that October. He was talking about that history of no longer chasing championships, but accumulating them. Mm-hmm. And he says, that's what we, we want, that history of not having, you know, years without a championship but having just an accumulation of championships to lord over teams. It was really, he was, it was awesome to talk to him. Yeah. Um, you know, Cup obviously fans are and, incredibly jealous of the Cardinals and Cardinals fans. I mean, incredibly yeah. Jealous. Yeah. And he, but he put that jealousy like in perspective, like, yeah. you know, it's not tomorrow that we're, that we're, we don't want to like duplicate their championships tomorrow. We want to have a, you know, the next decades like them. That's what, mm-hmm. that's what matters. And I thought that was interesting, but yeah, yeah. He, he was like St. Louis guy. Is that is this what it's like? So there's there's my um, Pearl Jam story. How about that? That's awesome. Uh, I, I like last that. the the one of the only photos that I have up, baseball wise, is of uh, Shoeless Joe and Babe Ruth sitting beside each other, and oh, yeah. Shoeless Joe is holding the bat and like pointing towards the sweet spot of the bat, and young Babe Ruth is leaned over looking down. It's awesome. I love that photo. Oh, that's so cool. I don't I'm have sorry. Any Babe Ruth is up. holding the bat. I'm sorry. Babe Ruth is holding the bat. Young Babe Ruth is holding the bat. And Shoeless Joe is talking about the sweet spot. So I don't have any photos up, but I have the lineup card from the first major league game I called, which the Diamondbacks oh, cool. gave me, which is really neat. Um, so I've got that sitting right by my desk from back when I worked with them. I have one of my prized possessions is my wife likes these thrift stores that we have on seventh Avenue in Phoenix, which are really cool. Like we, we have like a lot of mid-century furniture because you know, when, when in Rome, right? Like Phoenix is right, right. century. She found the radio part of an old radio shack sign and painted it bronze. And I have wow. that hanging on my wall. So that's one of the cool things. Cause, cause it just reminds everybody what I do for a living. Sometimes I forget. Wow, so, and then That's I also cool. have a, a print of um, uh, that somebody did several years ago of um, the Dance and Homer. It's a Springfield Isotopes Dance and Homer appearing every nice. home game at the bottom of the fourth and seventh inning. That's so, amazing. Yeah, Great. it's That's really perfect. cool. That's those are those are my uh, those are some of the uh, the fun artwork that I have. We have fun art in our house in general. So. That's awesome. Well, that's MLB Network Radio host extraordinaire Mike Fair. <laughs> 
You can find him on MLB Network Radio. You can also follow him on Twitter at Mike underscore Farron. That's Mike, of course, because, you know, he's a broadcaster. Underscore Farron. <laughs> what? You've never heard that before. I've been waiting it all along. Uh, so Mike underscore Farron, F-E-R-R-I-N. Mike, thank you so much. You're a good friend. You're great to talk ball with. I, I, uh, I enjoy our lunches very much in Phoenix, and I look forward to um, having them. Um, you know, I, I had hoped to make a trip out to Phoenix already here, but you know, things have been postponed because of the, the virus. And now we're looking at a lockout that could upset, rip up, delay whatever the regular season. So hope to get out there and look forward to our lunch and, uh, and trying to woo you back onto the best podcast in baseball. Me too, but it's good to be with you. Okay, press stop recording here and now to. Go check the Tottenham score.